Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Good morning. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> Food offered to idols. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, <clears throat> we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through farmer association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours did not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. <clears throat> First question, we learned back in chapter 5 that the Corinthian church was compromised by arrogance. What's the, what's the prideful issue now? Verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Knowledge. Hey, Kathy, you were throwing your voice. You <laughs> 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 your hand and made Cheryl talk. Yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been a victim of it? Might be a better way to answer that. I've been on both sides. Yeah, me too. Oh yeah. Me too. It doesn't feel good, does it? Particularly when you realize that you're the one doing it. Then it really feels bad. 
when the Spirit convicts you. But it's already out once you realize it. Yeah. You know, the wonderful thing about that <clears throat> in the church, what's the thing that the press secretaries say? We've got to walk that back. We've got to circle back on that. You know, we can do that. We have the ability, when we do something like that, to walk it back. And it's by confessing it. And particularly confessing it to the person that we've sinned against. I, I have had to do that quite a few times. Quite a few times. And it's a wonderful thing. It really refreshes a relationship when you do that, too. It can make it stronger than it was before. You know, particularly if, if you happen to be the stronger brother in that, parading your knowledge or something, and you can tell you've hurt the other person, and you confess that. And it's amazing how that builds a relationship <coughs> and having the humility to do that. And God can certainly give us that level of humility. Yeah, yeah. Knowledge. Anybody else have anything to add to that? Well, the specific issue? Yeah. What the specific issue is? That it, is it all right for a follower of Christ to eat parts of sacrificial animals from pagan rituals? Well, that's moving on into question two, I guess. Uh, I mean, we're kind of restricting ourselves to these um, first three verses on this puffed up thing with knowledge. Oh, okay, I see. I thought it said, what is the prideful issue now? Oh. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <coughs> okay, we'll move on to question two, Marianne, <laughs> if you're ready. <laughs> I'll pay for that. <laughs> it's on the way home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, we drove separately. So. <laughs> I was just Thanks for bailing me out on that, Cheryl. You're welcome. <laughs> I've always admired your wisdom, Cheryl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what do mature Christians know about idols and food sacrifice to them? Verses 4 through 8. What we know is there is really no such thing as an idol. Mm -hmm. 
R.C. Sproul would say it is nothing. It is no thing. There is, it is no thing. It doesn't exist other than in someone's mind. And if there is an idol that does exist, the closest thing that I could think of, it would be me. You know, and most of the stuff that we say are idols, like our car or our house or something like that. No, it's not that. Those things are, I'm wanting those things to reinforce me, to please me, my self-centeredness, my desire, wanting to be noticed. Remember John MacArthur said something really, I was in my truck, and it was a fairly new truck at the time. I was quite proud of it, and I was sitting at a traffic light. He said, isn't it interesting how much time and energy we built or devote to what we're going to drive, hoping that a person sitting next to us for five seconds is going to be impressed with it, and that we'll never see him again, and they'll never see us. And there's a lot of truth in that little that little thing, isn't there? Or what we you really like this vest, don't you, Justin? Okay, that's really pretty cool, isn't it? See, you know, we idolize ourselves, so we're you know we're not an idol. We don't, from that standpoint, we don't exist either. I mean, but we are so self-centered, we tend to become idolatrous about ourselves. But all this other stuff, uh, in uh, MacArthur's commentary on this, he was talking about <coughs> being in Hawaii one time, and he visited a Buddhist temple. He just wanted to see the thing. And he, some, some little lady came up there bowing down, you know, in this prostrate position before this, this idol, the Buddha, and then casting stones out in front of it. And it was like, he said it was like rolling dice that however these stones rolled out, we're going to tell something about her uh, future. And he said he felt like telling her, you know, those things don't, this, is, this thing's nothing here. And they were even laying food there in front of this idol. You know, Hawaii's full of that kind of stuff, isn't it? Those tiki gods, and, and they're nothing. Um Gods made with hands cannot be gods, can they? It's interesting how the Jews did that. When they make this calf and then bow down and worship the thing they just made. You know, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But we, Allah, Allah doesn't exist. It's a doctrine of a demon. And, you know, so many immature Christians tend to want to compromise on things like that. That, you know, we all worship the same God. No. No, Allah doesn't exist. And their concept of Jesus Christ is not a biblical concept. Muslims. Uh, Psalm 115, 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, they have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make sound in their throat. Those, this, listen to this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's frightening, isn't it? Those who make them become like them. You know, they become futile in their thinking. <clears throat> uh, 
so, Marianne. <laughs> now, coming back to this food thing being offered to idols, where were you going to go with that? Because this is really an appropriate time to <laughs> add that in. Actually, one question to to B. There is no B in 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 your copy, but in mine there is. Uh, I think it's kind of already been said back there, but meat is meat, and idols are nothing. There's only one God, the Father who made everything, and one Lord Jesus Christ, for whom are all things. So what is Paul, what is his teaching to these Corinthians and that where there were all sorts of idolatrous things there and food being sacrificed to them? Did the Christians there have liberty to eat that food being sacrificed to idols or not? They yes. did if it did not make their brothers suffer. Bingo. So the answer is yes and no, yeah. isn't it? Well, what I thought was interesting in the, in the Warren Wiersbe is that the meat at the temple was so much cheaper to buy than the meat at the market. So you could see why a lot of people would go to the temple to buy their meat. I did not realize this until I started studying this. Uh-huh. In the people would bring an ox, rich people anyway, to be slaughtered as a sacrifice. And the choice parts were burned on the altar. Now, can you imagine how many animals were being brought daily? It is unimaginable to be to imagine what it was like to be a, a Levite priest. And, and, you know, the, the PETA people today would say, that is horrible. That is horrific. They're right. It is. It was. But the choice pieces were burned on the altar. The priest got the next cut for themselves. But there was so much more than, they, that they, than what they could consume, they sold it in the marketplace. And that was the expensive stuff. And then the rest of the stuff, the canners and cutters, that's what just the ordinary people got. The canners and cutters, no, that used to be a term in the meat market, buying futures and stuff like that in commerce. We called canners and cutters. It was lower grade qualities of meat. But that stuff that the, the priests sold in the marketplace was, was expensive stuff uh, because people mistakenly thought that it had some special level of sanctification that there were no demons in it okay it's faulty thinking about that but it took a lot of wisdom on the part of the this you ever hear of mulligan stew yeah you are too young I've heard of it, but I don't remember what it is. Yeah. I grew up real close to the railroad tracks. And it was not 
frequent, but it was not unheard of for hobos, as we used to call them, to come to our back door and knock on the door for a food handout. And not too far from my house was something called a hobo jungle. And, and the people, and all this got started back in the Depression. You know, men were riding trains from here and there. And there would be, close to the railroad tracks always, there would be this camp. And the hobos knew where they were. And when, when we were kids, we used to raid them sometimes. We'd be very careful to make sure there was nobody there. Because they could be a pretty fearsome lot when they caught you in the jungle. Because they knew some, you know, 10, 12-year-old kid wasn't one of theirs. But they were interesting places. I mean, it was just this assemblage of stuff like you'd see in the homeless places in San Francisco and places today. But whole, uh, Mulligan stew, I mean, it was just really pretty cool, really. They had this tripod set up with a big metal pot on it. And just whatever they could accumulate, they would throw in that pot. So you didn't know what was in it. It, it wouldn't be like vegetable soup. It, they called it Mulligan stew. It was whatever they could get their hands on, to steal or handouts or whatever, and, and that the hobos would feed on that. That was the Corinthian culture. It was mulligan stew. It was all sorts of crazy things. Raiding. The, pardon me? All kinds of raiding going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really enjoying the picture of you and a bunch of 12 year olds raiding a hobo. Oh. <laughs> on your bicycles. <laughs> The last time we did that, there was one, if you're going out Maryland Street where Buchanan Road would turn into Maryland, we rode our bikes out in that area a lot, and anyway, we were, we were riding, and we knew where this place was, so we, we all parked, there were about six or eight of us, and so we got off our bikes, parked them off on the side of Buchanan Road, walked down this little trail, about probably from here to the front of the sanctuary to get to this place, and there was nobody down there. You know, there's weeds, and, the, and Pigeon Creek was down just below it. And on Pigeon Creek, there were a bunch of boathouses in those days. People lived in them, uh, starting at the Maryland Street Bridge and almost all the way down to the river. There were probably 15 or 20 of them that people lived in. And, and you had that combined with the hobos riding the rail there and the hobo jungle. And all. So anyway, we're rummaging around there. Well, George Lamar, he was the boldest of all of us. He actually went in this little hut they had there. I kind of stayed back. I was a little timid about that. And anyway, about that time, one of the hobos came up out of the, off the creek bank and started screaming at us. And all, all of us take off running back up the hill to get to our bikes. And I was the last one. Until we reached our bikes, I was the first one. <laughs> I, I ran past all of them getting up that hill, and Jarzel Marsh stole the hatchet out of the, out of the hut or something. But I didn't go back after that. I, that was my last adventure in the hobo jungle. So uh, well, we take up a lot of time for nothing here, but uh, it's an interesting story. It's good encouragement and entertainment. <laughs> So now these Corinthian believers have this dilemma. I'm free to eat this stuff, 
But I gotta be really careful who I eat in front of. And we have the same dilemma, don't we? In a lot of different uh, uh, venues of our life, what we can do and what we can't do. We'll work into that as we move on down here. What's more important than exercising the freedom that comes through knowledge? Verses 9 through 13. Question 3. Galatians 5.13 says, Brethren, you've been called into liberty, but don't use liberty as occasion for the flesh. By love, serve one another. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So what's important, more important than using your liberty to eat whatever <coughs> food you want? By love, serving one another. You know, we have some limitations in that uh, by our word love. We have one word for love. And it means a lot of different things, though. Uh, the Greeks had three words. There, some languages had more than that. But the three will suffice for Bible study purposes anyway. Uh, the first one is eros. And it's a good form of love when put in the proper relationship, erotic love. Okay? Second, phylos. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? How about Philadelphia? The city of what? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. Maria and I were at a, a dinner a few years ago, and we, we happened to be seated next to Don and Lori Mattingly. And, you know, Don Mattingly, the great baseball player for the New York Yankees, we were talking about, uh, I try to never ask him baseball questions when he used to come in and hit golf balls at, at our business. Um, I, you know, he doesn't want to talk baseball. He wants to talk something else. But something came up about baseball. Mary Ann was talking to Lori, and she said, you know, of all the cities we go to, we wives dread going to Philadelphia. I said, Why? She said, well, the wives always have a section that they sit in. And she said, the fans in Philadelphia are so, she said, they throw beer on us and, and throw garbage at us. And I said, you got to be kidding. That's the city of brotherly love. She said, yeah, ain't that something? Okay. Okay. Eros, phylos, agape. Agape. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here sacrificial love, you know, primarily exhibited through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. But we are to manifest that kind of love in our lives, love that costs us something, and particularly love that costs us something when we have no expectation, I would say, or even desire to get something back for it. Why would Nate Van Cleve desire to go to, to North Korea. I don't mean to embarrass you, Nate, but that story just humbles me every time I think of it. You know, I would want to get as far away from North Korea as I possibly could. Here's a man that God has put on his heart to want to go there. Very sacrificial kind of love. So rather than claiming their rights to do this, do that, or the other, these Corinthians are being challenged to love Weaker brothers and sisters, and un even unbelievers, agape, sacrificially. You know, don't put yourself first, but consider others' interests more as more important than yours. 
That's a hard truth for us to live by, isn't it? Yeah. What freedom do you currently enjoy that you would be willing to give up in order? I didn't put anything down in mine. I got, yeah, I did too. Little bitty letters off the side, I did. Okay. Well, the easy one, the easy one is Proverbs 20, uh, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. Now, I know it's probably going to really shock some of you. But sometimes I really like a cold beer. Now, none of the rest of you probably here do that or want wine at dinner. But occasionally, I like a good cold beer. But I try to be really careful where I do that because I'm known in the community. And, and even eating out, I, sometimes I do, sometimes I just don't. If there's somebody there for sure that I know, I won't, because I don't know where they are in the Lord. Anybody else? Complex, isn't it? Yeah. So when you and you and Dalton started dating, did you say tell him that lips that touch liquor will never touch mine? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was actually willing to give it up. Uh, yeah, don't blame me. I would have been too. <laughs> to learn more about 1 Corinthians 11 just to hear my carnic stories. Yeah. But there's freedom to 
to be on these different platforms and they can be used for good and it's not necessarily bad. Good. Any others? You know, that thing about being a Baptist and, and not drinking made, made me think of something that I had scribbled in here somewhere that I think I passed over. We have the capable capability of sinning on both sides of this thing. We can, we can sin in our liberality because we, we have the, the liberty to do a lot of things. You know, some we shouldn't do, some are okay. And then we all, but we can get kind of, uh, we can go from liberality into licentiousness pretty easily in that. Well, I'm free to do this and free to do that and you know, then we get into this thing of cheap grace, and that this was a big deal 30 years ago about lordship salvation. You know, well, I'm saved, but people would not recognize Jesus' lordship over their lives. And they would call themselves, well, well I'm a, a carnal Christian. And, and it would be a, an abuse of liberality which probably showed that they were the one of those people that Jesus said, I never knew you. What's that say here? Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Jesus said that. You know, a, lot called, a lot of people are calling my name. I'm going to tell them I never knew you. So we don't have the license to abuse our liberality. On the other hand, we can become very legalistic and be abusive in that way, can't we? So it's a, we pray that God would give us the wisdom to walk wisely in this world with regard to all these issues. And you know what? He does. He does. And when you're in doubt, ask somebody. Ask, ask another believer, hey, I'm... I'm what do you think about this issue? That's the beauty of the body of Christ. You know, we build one another up in, in love and good works. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing uh, thing that God has given us in the church and being in small groups, whether it be a Sunday school class or a, something that meets once a week or whatever. Um, what kind of behavior, what kind, what can the behavior of a mature believer challenge an immature believer to grow? Well, you said it earlier, just being the example and being willing to sacrifice something, your yeah. own desire. I'm going to paint with a very wide brush here. But frequently, new believers can tend to be pretty legalistic. You know, they, they go from this life, particularly if they're a little older when they get saved, 
they know what that life that they lived was. And they want to really leave that behind. So they, they become a bit legalistic in how they do things. Uh, you know, just a few of them. Smoking, drinking, alcohol, playing cards, dancing, uh, makeup, uh, styles of music. Uh, you know, there are some churches that don't believe you should use instruments. I don't know where they came with that. What is that? There used to be this guy on radio, on Christian radio. Mary and I listened to it. She just couldn't stand it when I turned it on. But we'd be leaving church. He was on right about noon on Sunday. And he was, he was at some west side church. And all that program was every Sunday was him railing against the use of instrumental music in, during the music worship part of the service. So, so very immature believer there. And you should have read the Psalms. Uh, uh, you know, Sunday sports, uh, movies, all of those things have been things that, things that have been uh, swirled around in the church over the years. Uh, First thing that comes to mind for me, Bob, is just that I, I think of a new believer, an immature believer, they've gone from a, just a general, there was a general knowledge of God was, and then God, in His grace, has drawn that heart to Him. So now they are beginning to grow in this personal knowledge of God, and so I would just say encouraging them to be in God's Word more than anything else. Just that you know, just growing in our falling in love more and more with Christ every day by just being in His Word, and maybe yeah. even coming alongside Him and saying, "Hey, let's go through a book of the Bible together." Just, just because that is the one thing that we can, you know, neglect more than anything is at times is just that daily intake of God's Word where we're reading it carefully prayerfully, regularly, and just, just encouraging that in a real yeah. simple way, yeah. you know, however that might look, you know. And, so. Yeah, that's really good. It's nurturing someone in yeah. that life-on-life life yeah. kind of thing. Um, there's a term, and I'm, I'm puffed up in my knowledge here, but there is a there is a um, uh, theologic term in this that applies. It is things that are called adiaphoric. Five syllables. I'm really only capable of three, but I'm stretching to five. Adiaphoric. It means things that the Bible, where the Bible is neutral. You know, there's there's. There are some issues that are clearly permissible, some issues that are clearly not permissible, but then in the middle there are these gray things, and, and those are really the kind of things we're talking about here. The Bible's mute on them, where it requires judgment to decide, in this situation, is it okay for me to do this or not? Uh, that's where the wisdom is. say a young believer going into maturity that the pendulum swings far away from the things that led them in their life apart from Christ very drastically early on. Yes. And that it's only as maturity sets in and develops that they can maybe rest a little bit better back into some areas of freedom um, as they mature. And I just think about my kids, you know, 
there's just a lot of things my daughter, you know, there's two she could do. She absolutely can go up and down the stairs on her own right now, but she can't do it well. Yeah. And so I just don't encourage it at all, right? Um, and I just think about the, the life and the growth of the unbeliever. I don't think I would encourage them back into those things that could easily cause them to stumble, but rather continue to just point them to the gospel and not putting their hope in their refraining from those things, right? To develop them and nurture them. And then as they mature, you ease back into those areas of freedom without yeah. violating their conscience. And, and those areas of freedom, as you do grow in them, create that a, a, a deeper sense of joy because you realize that the just the significance of what that sacrifice meant. I don't have this burden on me that I had before. I've been relieved of that. And it, it creates a much more joyful Christian life. Yeah, well, uh, my husband and I are from a Bible church in Topeka, Kansas. Renee is our daughter. Um, but our, our pastor gave, gave a sermon or a series on, he called it Bibco and Perco. Bibco is biblical convictions and Perco is personal convictions. And so yeah. he listed, he had a list, he grew up in a conservative home and he had a list of all the Perco, per kind of like no movies, no dancing, and, and I grew up in a home like that too. It was just an interesting series, but I was reading just now in Galatians 5, verses one and two, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And so Paul was, encountering people that you know you had to be circumcised and um, there were just a lot of um, the law was still governing a lot of the oh. Jewish believers so anyway that's just another another uh, perspective yeah and remember at the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts where that issue came up he said why are you doing this why are you putting this yoke back on these Gentile believers that neither we nor our fathers could bear. He essentially was saying, we need to be more like them than trying to make them like us. You know, they were enjoying this liberty that the, the Judaizers were trying to, to muzzle because they, now they, were, they didn't have control over them. Yeah, yeah crazy stuff. Yeah. Any other comments on that? Yep. Five or ten more minutes. Why don't we flip over to chapter nine? We have such a limited time uh, over the next, over this month to try to get through as much of this as we can. And we are for sure not going to finish it. But uh, let's just take this a question at a time here. The first question is what rights does Paul say that he has as an apostle, verses 1 through 7? I'll read those. But it starts out with Paul surrenders his rights. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord, apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So, it's a rhetorical question here, but what rights does Paul say that he has as an apostle? And why do you, let's start off differently. Why do you think he's defending that? What's happening here? I think he has to defend that he has the right to do whatever he wants because he's saying that even though he can do it every once, he's willing to give up eating meat or anything that would cause his brother to stumble. So even though he has all power to do what he could be doing, he cares more for his brother and that his brother would be trusting Christ sincerely. That's right. Are they saying that they're judging him for making an income? But he didn't. He said, I could, but we know later he didn't because he didn't want people to stumble. But he has the right to. He has the right. And, you know, he's kind of uh, defending the leaders in the church going forward. They have a right to be supported. Bryce Beal has a right to be. Our missionaries have a right to expect to be supported doing the work of the Lord. And we should be doing that for them, gladly doing it for them, actually. That they're doing that heavy labor. So it's not just for this culture he's speaking to. Certainly his apostleship was being challenged in this church there. Because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. He was challenging them too much. So then they, you know, if you don't like the message, kill the messenger. They're trying to find some way to silence him because they didn't like the message. Uh... And he's pushing back against that. But he's pushing bigger than that. He's pushing back to the rights of the leaders of the church going forward to be supported. That's really good. Good insight into that. I think he's pushing just as hard towards liberty as he is against that works-based righteousness that he had been set free from. Um, these, These people are using their system as their righteousness. So, you know, he's talking about liberty, uh, but at the same time, he's also destroying their system and their trust in their own works. Um, You know, I'm not going to eat pagan uh, foods. Is that going to get you to heaven? You know, so that's really destroying their system, and it's also forcing them to consider his own liberty at the same time. So... Um, I think he that's part of why he was so passionate about it because it is a gospel issue because if you're trusting in your own righteousness you're not saved you know so um, very important um, I think push against that system We've kind of worked into this question number two, but let's let's talk about that, and then we'll we will uh, we will end with that today. 
why did Paul refuse to assert his right to receive support from the church in Corinth, uh, 8 through 14? Do I say these things on human authority? Does the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we, re if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So what's his point here? We've really already talked about this some. I've already talked about it some. Well, I wonder if, you know, he was collecting for the Jerusalem church, too, you know, that were financially strapped. So is it kind of odd to be collecting for those who need it and then, hey, I need some, too? You know, is it would it have been uh, an odd request? And maybe he felt that from them. Uh, again, like you said, he was giving a message they didn't want to hear. So why would they want to support him to continue to give that message they didn't want to ask? So there were a lot of obstacles uh, so not wanting to cause dissension or bad blood in these new believers, these new churches, um, I thought it was uh, really strong of him to want to show that he is willing to just do this and pull his own load yeah. and therefore teach them graciousness in yeah. return. You know, we call that in the, the church today because of what Paul did. He was a tent maker. And, you know, we, we refer to that as there are tent-making leaders in the church, people that make a living outside the church to be able to do the work yes. and so as not to burden the church yes. uh, for things. I know a little Baptist church here in town. I was just saw a man that worships there is a, uh, uh, works in our business, and it's a struggling church. And the pastor just recently told him, he said, hey, he said, I, he's an over-the-road truck driver. But he told him, he said, I, I'm going to cut my, my salary that you pay me more than in half so we can pay our debt off. Now, that guy was being a Paul in that. I thought that's really pretty neat that that guy loved that congregation and they're really a bunch of really old people and the church isn't growing and they're struggling financially and that... Mm -hmm. uh, He's giving up his right to assume that they're going to pay him so that the church would be financially in a healthier position. Jeff yeah. and I had a similar, we uh, volunteered at an inner city church for many years and the pastor there never took salary. Mm -hmm. yeah. He had something from before he became a believer that was supporting him. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. 